Welcome back to another volume of Truly Disturbing Tales from Reddit. Today we're going to be narrating three new unsettling stories, taken directly from the platform. I encourage you all to sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy these terrifying personal accounts. Now, without any further delay, let's jump right in. So to start, I'm a transgender woman. I'm single, and I make my status as trans very clear on all my dating profiles, except plenty of fish, because they consider that to be talking about sex, and they will straight up ban you for it. So I state that instead, I'm a huge proponent of trans rights. So this guy messages me on POF. He lives about an hour away, kind of cute in a mildly creepy way, like something seems just a little off about him. But people can't help how they look. So I decided to give him a chance. Just like I would want someone to do for me. I discover that he's a smoker. But he says he's trying hard to quit. And only does it when he's really stressed or upset. We have a nice conversation. And he finally asks for my number. Without thinking about it, I give it to him. But I tell him that I'm getting ready for my evening classes. So I'll be slow to respond. A few minutes go by. And I get, hi, it's username from POF. Now usually, I send a standard quick message. Hi, it's Allie. So just to be clear, since my profile might be a little vague, I'm a transgender woman. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea. So if you're not interested, I completely understand. About 20% of the time, the guy isn't interested and gets rude and needs to be blocked. The other 80% is split between immediate inappropriate questions and dick pics, casual acceptance, or dead silence. But like I said, I was getting ready to go to class, so I hadn't even sent the message yet. A few minutes go by, and I'm about to text him my standard when I get another text. Who the f*** is full dead name? Why is he paying your cell phone bill? Me. Where did you even get that name? Him. Answer the question. Who is he? I'm honestly stunned at this point. I realize he must have paid one of those shady websites that offer personal info for a fee. Well, if you must know, I'm transgender, and that used to be my name. I was about to tell you when you pulled that stunt. Please do us both a favor and lose my number. That's incredibly invasive of you, and I don't want to talk to you anymore. Do you still live at my address at the time, in hometown. I'm coming to see you so we can talk about this in person. Me lying. No, I moved a few months ago, and I'm getting ready to head out like I said. You need to leave me alone. Don't contact me again. Him. Since you have something to hide, I'm going to run a full background check on you. You lied to me, and I don't appreciate that. Me. I'm sending screen caps of this conversation. Your POF profile and your photos to my two best friends who work in law enforcement in your town, and my ex-boyfriend who I'm still on good terms with, who works at the local sheriff's office. Don't text me again. I didn't hear anything else from him for a few weeks. I made sure my doors and windows were locked, and the aforementioned friends and ex would check up on me from time to time. Eventually, it just became one of those weird things that makes you laugh uneasily. And then one day... 
I thought I saw him at the local grocery store. Same dark hair, thick glasses frames, and just a creepy guy staring at me, watching me as I shopped. I texted my ex about it, and as an upswing on things, my ex and I got back together in a casual sort of way, and he stayed the night a few times a month off and on. One night, when I was alone though, I just kept getting this weird feeling and smelling smoke. I lived in a little apartment complex that were three separate apartments that shared walls, but no plumbing or air ducts. I don't smoke, and I'm very sensitive to the smell, thanks to asthma. The apartment had a wall AC unit, so I turned it off since it was apparently pulling air in from a neighbor's guest who must have been chain smoking, or so I thought. I had an ASL video due the next morning, so I was up all night practicing and recording the video, signing the same story over and over until it was almost a dance rather than narration. A couple of times I had to restart the video because my cat was going nuts. Finally, around 7am, I had the video finished and sent in, so I was ready for bed. I double-checked all the doors and windows, set an alarm, and went to sleep. I woke up and got ready for school, but was running a bit late and had to hurry out the door. But I noticed something weird, although I didn't have time to stop and register it. Classes went smoothly. I got an A on my ASL video, and I stopped for groceries on my way home. As I reached my front door, I saw what had been bugging me earlier. Each apartment had a small garden on each side of the porch. Mine was nothing but gravel and pavers the previous tenant had put in, but it was tidy, except for a pile of cigarette butts that looked like someone had dumped their car ashtray in my garden. There was no other trash, just that pile, right in front of my bedroom window. I don't think anything about it at first. I just get a broom and a dustpan and sweep it up. As I'm doing it, my neighbor, who's an old man, comes out and asks if my boyfriend ever got a hold of me. I ask him what he means. He tells me there was a young man waiting for me on my porch off and on for a few hours last night, that he'd seen the guy around before and thought he was my boyfriend. I ask what he looked like. Dark hair, thick glasses, chain smoking. I text the on-again, off-again ex. Cops take statements, and I give them the screenshots. I moved out of state a few weeks later, for unrelated reasons, and have legally changed my name since, with closed records. I don't give guys my number anymore. Ladies and my fellow queer family, use a texting app until you get to know someone. Because for like $5, creeps on the internet can learn everything about you from those seven digits. When I was 19, in the early 90s, my brother and his wife were newly married and living in Baltimore. I was from Maryland, but had not yet spent time in that city. I knew it wasn't totally safe in parts, but I also knew that I was just going straight to my brother and sister-in-law's house, so it would be fine. Until I turned onto the wrong street. This was MLK Boulevard, and back then, it was a stretch of abandoned gas stations sketchy bars, boarded up houses. A few people were walking in the middle of the street, drinking out of paper bags. I knew that I had messed up, and instead of freaking out and getting more lost, 
I pulled into an abandoned gas station. There was a bank of payphones, and I parked about ten feet from them, hopped out, and called my brother. He was impatient at first, because he knew the city quite well, although it was my first time driving in it, and I was trying to write down his directions as he gave them to me. Just then, something caught my eye, and I looked over at my car. Three men were leaning against it, two on the passenger side, one against the driver's side front door. They were all staring at me with their arms crossed. I started to silently cry, thankful that I had sunglasses on. My brother heard me sniffling and said, Why are you upset? I'm giving you directions. But I couldn't tell him what was going on, as the men were within earshot. I got the rest of the directions, put them in my pocket, and walked to my car. The man leaning against my front door reached up and wiped the tears from one cheek. And then he said, Why are you crying, baby? Nothing bad has happened yet. Without even thinking about it, I responded, full sobbing now. I just shot my boyfriend, and I'm in a lot of trouble. The cops are. That's all I got out. The three men had all taken off in separate directions at full sprints, just to get away from me. If I hadn't been gifted with that lie from my guardian angels, or whomever saved my ass that day, who knows what would have happened. I no longer live in Maryland, and I may never have a use for that lie again, but I encourage anybody that may be in a situation just like that to not be afraid to pull that one out of your sleeve. It may keep you safe as well. This was a long time ago, so the timeline might be a little bit off, and some details are a bit fuzzy, but I've written it out exactly as I recall it. In the early 2000s, my family was living in Europe, and in December of 2001, we were coming back home to Latin America for a Christmas vacation. My brother and I, both in high school at the time, and my dad were flying together from Paris to Miami. My dad was seated in business class, while my brother and I were in coach, sitting in the middle two seats of a middle row. The flight was pretty normal at first, absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. About four or five hours into the flight, I was reading a book, almost dozing off, when I heard a woman start to repeat the word, no, over and over. At first, it was real quiet, almost inaudible, but it quickly got very loud and urgent. Before I realized what was happening, she was screaming, no, 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 at the top of her lungs. I looked up and saw a flight attendant a few rows ahead of me, hunched over someone sitting on the window seat. My first thought was that a passenger was having a heart attack or some catastrophic health event, but her yelling was so unsettling that this couldn't be it. There was a strangely long delay in people's reactions. Nobody did anything. I completely panicked and froze in my seat. My brother, on the other hand, jumped out of his seat jumped over the person sitting on the aisle seat to his right, and ran up to see what was going on. He was up there in a matter of seconds, and as he approached, suddenly everyone around us stood to see what was going on, and or try to help. She kept screaming, and now she was struggling with this passenger, 
He was really tall, so tall that his whole head was visible over the back of the seat, and he had long, curly black hair. My brother came back to our row and said, Something's wrong, before going back up to get a closer look. Passengers close to her began struggling with the guy as well. A bunch of people jumped on him and started pulling at him, and someone in the row behind him even pulled his hair back so hard that his face jerked towards the top of the plane. He let out a really loud moan, scream of pain, and then there was chaos. The aisles were so crowded that nobody could move. I saw a fire extinguisher being passed hand to hand from the back of the plane. I immediately thought there was a fire and that we were all going to die. It was an incredibly hopeless sensation to know that there was nowhere to run and no way to escape the situation unfolding in front of you. They passed the extinguisher up to a male flight attendant near the guy, and the flight attendant hit him with the butt of the extinguisher really hard in the face. They started asking for belts, headphones, straps, anything they could use to restrain this man. My brother took off his belt and gave it to the group. They wrapped everything they could around that passenger's arms, shoulders, and torso, securing him to the seat. I saw the male flight attendant who had hit him with the extinguisher carry a pair of large black tennis shoes to the back of the plane, which at the time seemed kind of strange, but I didn't think much of it. The flight attendants asked if there was a doctor on board to sedate the guy. People kept asking if there was a flight marshal on board as well, but nobody came forward. I can't remember exactly how or when things calmed down, but eventually everyone was told to return to their seats. A small group of the people that helped to restrain the guy were asked to keep guard on a rotation. There were always at least a few people sitting behind him or next to him, keeping an eye on him. I think there was even someone behind him holding a fistful of his hair for the rest of the flight. The pilot announced over the PA that there had been a security breach. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was vague. And ultimately that we were being diverted to Logan Airport in Boston. He said they didn't know if the person was working alone, so get to know your neighbor. We were in the middle of the Atlantic, with maybe four more hours to go before we could land. Things were a bit ominous and tense, but for the most part, everyone tried to maintain a friendly disposition and stay in a good mood. Nobody knew what had actually just happened. We weren't allowed to get up from our seats, and if you had to use the bathroom, you needed to call a flight attendant to escort you to the lavatory where you weren't allowed to lock the door. I remember a grumpy old Frenchman, a few rows from us, got really annoyed after a while and kept getting up without permission just to annoy the flight attendants. They weren't happy. After a while, they put on the movie Legally Blonde to distract passengers. My brother and I went up to business class to talk to my dad. Apparently they didn't hear the extent of the chaos back in coach and they were all going about business as usual. A few hours later, as we approached the U.S., we saw fighter jets outside of the windows on both sides of the plane. The pilot announced that they were there to escort us to Boston. A few little kids got really excited watching the jets. I later learned that these are the last resort security measures to prevent hijacked planes from repeating 9-11 style attacks. They were supposed to shoot us down in case of a major threat. We landed and were told to stay seated. A SWAT team came on board carrying assault rifles, 
and tons of body armor. They cut off all the guy's restraints and took him off the plane. I saw everything in detail, since we were seated only a few rows behind him. We were parked in the middle of the tarmac for a long time before we were allowed to disembark. I remember seeing pieces of my brother's belt on the guy's seat as we left, and thought about taking one as a souvenir, but then I thought better of it. We were taken to a baggage claim area in Boston Logan Airport that was surrounded by a large metal fence to keep us all in one place. We were there for what felt like three or four hours, just waiting anxiously, and nobody would explain a thing to us. Passengers were getting really agitated, shaking the metal fences, and yelling at airport personnel that this was inhumane treatment. There was no food, nowhere to sit, and children were crying all over. Dozens of people were trying to sleep on the baggage carousel. They finally ordered a bunch of pizzas and led us into a waiting area with actual chairs, where each passenger was interrogated by the FBI. They were astonishingly unfriendly. I guess they were trying to discern if the guy had any partners on board. They then shuttled us to our baggage, where security officers thoroughly hand-searched every single passenger's shoes, suitcases, and carry-on bags, while patting everyone down as well. We were finally allowed to make a phone call, and we called my mom. The rest of the family was completely hysterical. They had been watching the news all day, and knew that a member of an Islamic extremist terrorist group had tried to blow up our flight with a bomb that he had smuggled on board in his shoe. We had absolutely no idea what had really happened up until this moment, as we were kept completely in the dark. It was a very strange sensation. Up until this point, my dad, brother, and I had actually remained pretty relaxed considering the circumstances, and were more annoyed about the inconvenient changes to our travel itinerary than the crazy experience on the plane. We had no idea how bad the security breach really was, and how close we came to being killed. After about 12 hours in Boston, we were put on another flight home. My brother made the mistake of giving a few interviews to CNN and other networks while we were in Boston, so when we landed in our small country, he was immediately swarmed by the press and gave a bunch of interviews despite being exhausted. I was happy to finally sit and relax with my family after the longest and most stressful trip of my life. We later learned that the bomber, Richard Reed, had actually tried to board the same flight on the previous day. He was detained and questioned by French security because of multiple red flags. He had no luggage and had purchased a one-way ticket with cash, and this caused him to miss his flight. They put him on the next day's flight and put him up in a hotel kind of far from the airport since everything nearby was booked. The following day, it rained, and on the walk from the hotel to the airport, his shoes got wet. This very well might have been the reason that he had trouble lighting the wick in his shoe. His plan was to light it mid-flight. He waited until the passenger next to him went to the bathroom, and then he attempted to light his shoe with matches. The female flight attendant that first engaged him had smelled the matches and was walking up and down the aisle to look for the passenger who, she had assumed, was trying to smoke a cigarette. She saw him with his shoe in his lap and immediately tried to take it from him. They struggled and he bit her hand. Reed is now serving three life terms in prison for his attempt. 
a few things that I'm incredibly grateful for from that flight. The quick and decisive actions of those attendants and the passengers aboard, as well as the inclement weather of France, knowing now that that's probably what saved us all from a fiery death above the ocean. Hey everybody, Malevolent here. I wanted to thank you all for taking time out to watch this and all the other videos on the channel. It's very much appreciated. And if you enjoy what we do here, please hit those like and subscribe buttons below. The support means a lot, and I'll be sure to keep the content coming. Thank you again, and I'll catch you on the next one.